continue our study there in looking at this morning the fall of man as sin enters the world for the first time. So Genesis chapter three, we'll begin reading in verse one. I'm going to read down to um, verse 13. Uh, We've got 24 verses this morning. We are gonna go through the whole chapter. Uh, But let's read God's word this morning. So stand with me, if you would, while we read God's word in honor, the Lord speaking to us. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Lord, please add uh, your blessing to the reading of your word. Please illumine our hearts and our minds and give us understanding as we consider the things you have for us this morning. Lord, as we behold the wonders of your word, the truth, and Lord, speak to us and quicken our hearts to understand and be sensitive to the things that you have. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated this morning. So as is true as we're going through the book of Genesis, we keep coming to a situation of firsts, first occurrences, first appearances, first mentions. And today is no different. In fact, this chapter is full of those kinds of things. Uh, We find the first appearance of Satan. We find the Uh, that sin is entering the world for the first time. We find deception for the first time. We find blaming and blame shifting for the first time. We find that Eve is mentioned for the first time by name. We find a blood sacrifice or what we call more formally substitutionary atonement mentioned for the first time. We have the first mention of a prophecy or a prophetic passage or the first reference to the Messiah. And there are others. So as we get into this this morning, let's just be ready for a a bevy of things coming our way as the Lord speaks to us. So in verse 1, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. 
And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So here we find the introduction of the serpent. And so Satan had taken a form in coming to Adam and Eve, or coming to Eve in particular, and presenting himself. So the word serpent here is very interesting. Uh, it means to practice divination, to observe signs, uh, to diligently observe and practice. So this would refer, of course, to the serpent or Satan observing mankind and determining how he's going to uh, come to us and attack us. Uh, to practice fortune telling, to take as an omen. Uh, the primary root of the word means to hiss, which is appropriate, isn't it, for a serpent? Or that is a whisper. And some have even said in their uh, Hebrew definitions, a mat like whispering, a magic spell, or to prognosticate, to divine, or to enchant. So as the serpent is mentioned here, as he comes on the scene, we understand that the serpent really takes on these qualities of the evil one, of Satan himself. And these uh, definitions around the word serpent just give us sort of a, an indication of how the serpent operates, of what his character is. And it says here that the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field. That means he was crafty, he was shrewd, he was even subtle in the way that he came to present himself. And one of the things that's interesting about the definition of cunning here is it talks about being sensible and prudent. And, you know, we pride ourselves sometimes on being sensible and prudent, and certainly those are good qualities to have. But I want to make sure you understand this morning as we consider this issue of the, of the serpent or Satan coming and presenting himself to us or presenting to us options or trying to lead us astray and deceive us, that sometimes he will use a very sensible and a prudent or a pragmatic approach. And uh, why do we mention that? Well, the issue of faith for us as believers in Jesus Christ, faith involves risk. Faith involves trust. And sometimes when God calls us to trust him, it may not seem pragmatic or sensible to us to do those things. Think, consider, for example, when Jesus said to Peter, as they, uh, Peter was in the boat and he saw the Lord walking on the water, and he said, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come out to you. And he said, come. Was that pragmatic? Was that prudent? Was that sensible? What about when Jesus was feeding the 5,000 and he told the disciples to go and gather up and take an account of their resources? And he said, what do you have? And he said, uh, we have a young lad here with a lunch basket that has a couple of loaves of bread and, and some fish, which are really more like muffins and just little smelt kind of sardine kind of things. And then uh, they looked at one another and said, that doesn't make sense. How are we going to feed people? There's nothing sensible, there's nothing prudent, there's nothing pragmatic about one lunch able to feed 5,000 plus people. Yet Jesus said, let's pray. And so the point of the matter is that often Satan will use his cunning to lead us away from faith. And faith calls us to trust God when things don't make sense. In fact, if we didn't have faith when things don't make sense, how would we make sense of anything? Faith draws us to the most sensible person in the world who is 
our Lord God Almighty, it is the Jesus Christ himself. You see, sensibility, prudence, and pragmatism can be the enemy of faith when we come to rely only upon what we can see. Remember that beautiful verse many of us have probably memorized in Proverbs chapter 3? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall make your paths straight. When we trust in the Lord when we can't see and we can't understand, it is not always sensible and prudent. So this scene is set up by something that uh, I believe previously happened in heaven. We've referred to it before, but in Isaiah chapter 14 and in Ezekiel 28, we have uh, both a little snippet of what happened when Satan rebelled against God and ultimately fell from grace from God. We find in Isaiah 14, beginning in verse 12, how you were fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you were cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend the heights of the clouds and I will be like the most high. And so we find a similar thing in Ezekiel 28 where God uh, says that Satan was an anointed cherub, and again, he fell from grace. And we get the sense there that uh, the cherubs, they were, they were leading worship around the throne of God. They were there exclusively to draw attention to God himself. And it says in Ezekiel 28, 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. And so we find there in those two passages, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, the root of Satan's discontent. And his discontent was he wanted to usurp the position of God. He wanted to be like God. He wanted people to worship him. And so now Satan comes to Eve and he says, has God said? And you see, Satan always calls into question God's word. He tries to put doubt behind God's word. The first thing he does is he, he, he tries to convince us that God's word really isn't correct. And he tries to bring confusion around what did God really say in his word. And so I'd like to just take a moment and point out to you that it's so important for us to read God's word, to know God's word. Because if Satan comes and he says something such as he did to Eve, you know, has God said, and then begins to question it, and we don't know God's word, then we will be confused. We will be easily led astray. One of the techniques or the methods he uses, uses is to question, is God's word really best for you? How many of you have heard the phrase that somebody has said to you, well, you know, you really need to do what's best for you? And that, I find that common today. I hear it all the time as one person gives counsel to another person. And really, that's the best direction we have to people you should just do what's best for you. No, you need to listen to God's word. 
You need to listen to godly counsel, meaning people who know God's word and who can bring it to you and help you understand it. Yes, there are some decisions that are unclear that ultimately we have to pray about. But as we pray about those decisions, we are seeking what is God's best for us. Lord, what do you have for me? Lord, how do you want me to, to think and to move in this situation? You see, without God's direction, without God's guidance, we are left to our own devices. And the second we do that, we have made ourselves a sitting duck, a primary target for Satan. If we have the mindset that I'm just going to do what's best for me, and we don't exercise faith, and we don't understand and know and meditate upon and consider what God's word has to say, we will fall into the same plight, the same situation that unfortunately Eve fell into here as an example for us. And the woman, verse two, said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. One person put it this way, um, Eve's first mistake was even in carrying on a discussion with the serpent. We are called to talk to the devil, but never to have a discussion with him. We simply and strongly tell him, as it says in Jude verse 9, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. So that really is the only conversation we should ever have with him, other than to tell him what God's word says, as Jesus did when he was tempted. And we will come to that in a moment. But we find here that Eve is now confused on what God said. So what did God really say? If you just glance back up to Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, here's what he said. Now keep in mind, the Lord spoke this to Adam before Eve had been brought into existence. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Adam obviously had conveyed to Eve what God had said, but God did not say you shall not, um, but God did say, excuse me, that you shall not eat, but he did not say that you shall not touch the tree, which is something that she added in there. Now, certainly perhaps it was a good idea not to touch the tree and not to tempt ourselves, but that's not what God said. And the second we get off track and begin to say what something God did not say, we begin to open the door to our own thoughts and feelings and interpretations. And then it, uh, in the phrase where it's, she said, lest you die, God said, you shall surely die. You see, saying lest you die sort of introduces a possibility but God said, if you eat of that fruit, you will actually die. You shall surely die. And she also left out the fact that God commanded Adam and Eve not to touch, or rather not to eat of that fruit. So Satan attacks God's word. He tries to take away from it. He tries to diminish it. And here's a question for us this morning. How many of us say that we believe in and trust the veracity and the accuracy and the authority of Scripture, but we live in contrast to its truth. Are there things in our lives right now, as we listen to God's Word, 
that we are embracing and doing in our lives that are in direct contradiction to God's word. You see, if that is true, if we say one thing and do another, then we ourselves are making ourselves like Eve. We are making ourselves vulnerable to the attack of Satan. And we certainly don't want to make ourselves open to the things of Satan. So in verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, that's what Satan wanted. That's why I went back and I read Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. You see, that was Satan's desire from the beginning when he made his choice to turn away from God. And here he comes to Eve and ultimately to us via the scriptures peddling his wares and saying, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, Satan, just to call a little bit of attention, this is one of the few times we do this where we talk about the devil. Satan is called Satan 55 times in scripture. He is called the devil <clears throat> 35 times. He is called by the name of Lucifer one time in that passage we read in the, in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, he is called the dragon 13 times in the book of Revelation. He is called the serpent four times in Revelation and five times here in Genesis, he's called the serpent. So he is called a serpent, he's called a dragon, he's called a roaring lion who devours by Peter. In the book of Revelation, he is called a baden and apollyon, which means destroyer. The word Satan itself means adversary. The word devil means slanderer. Jesus called him in John chapter eight, a murderer and the father of lies. He even called him the evil one, which is a title that Paul and John both later echoed in their writings. Jesus also called Satan the prince of this world. Paul called Satan in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this age. In Ephesians 2, Paul referred to him as the prince of the power of the air, who now works in the sons of disobedience. Keep that in mind as you watch the news. In Ephesians 6.10, speaking of the influence of Satan, Ephesians 6 is the passage that talks about putting on the full armor of God. We are told to be aware of the wiles or the schemes of the devil. And then we are told that there are principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So you see, Satan goes by many names and his names always refer to his character and all of those aspects of his character are there in full measure as Satan seeks to steal and to kill and to destroy, which is something Jesus said about his character. Now, as we consider the appearances of Satan in the scriptures, aside from that heavenly appearance we saw in eternity past, in those two passages we looked at a moment ago, we find here in Genesis chapter 3, as Satan appears, he appears slandering God to man as he comes to Eve. Then in the book of Job chapters 1 and 2, we find Satan going into uh, heaven before God, and clearly as Satan is entering the throne room of God there in, in Job chapter 1 and 2, it's after the fall, and he comes to accuse Job 
and he comes to tell God, essentially, Job only worships you because you bless him. And so now Satan is before God, slandering man to God. And then later in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, where we come to the temptation of Jesus, we again find Satan coming to the man, the God-man Jesus, and what is he doing once again? He's slandering God and his word to man, or in this case, to Jesus. So Satan likes to twist and to tempt and to misrepresent and to not speak the whole truth. Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, said this of our adversary, Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And that is the reason I'm mentioning these things for us to consider this morning. Satan is an imitator, he's a counterfeiter, and he's all of these things we just talked about that he is. So in his direct challenge to Eve, he tries to get Eve to doubt the goodness of God. And he tries to convince her, in essence, that God has lied to her. And the underlying thought is, you know, Eve, if God has lied to you, then how can he be good? Doesn't that sound like Satan? Hasn't he done that? Hasn't he convinced countless numbers of people that God is not good, that he cannot be trusted, that he does not keep his word, and that he is a liar? In Satan's direct challenge to Eve, he gets Eve to doubt the badness of sin. And part of what he convinces her is, you know, it's really not that bad. It's just a little fruit from the tree. And if this fruit is something good for her, if he, if he can convince her of that, then basically the underlying premise is, why doesn't God want you to have what's good? Again, what's good for you? Do what's right for you. There's fruit there. Just take it and eat it. And then Satan wants us to see sin as something good that a bad God doesn't want us to have. His main lie to us is sin is not bad and God is not good. And the second that he can convince us of that on any topic, on any level, he has us on a slippery slope and we are falling prey to his devices. In Genesis 3, 6, as we continue, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. So she came to the place where she had succumbed. She became convinced. She looked at the tree after what Satan had said to her, or the serpent, and her perceptions had become altered. Uh, they were partially true and partially false. The tree was not really good for food, though Eve was deceived into thinking that it was. The fruit probably was pleasant to the eyes, though that shouldn't mean much. And it was only true in Eve's mind that the tree was desirable to make one wise. You see, if Satan can win the battle in the mind, then he's won a significant battle. In 1 Timothy 2.14, Paul said that when Eve sinned, that she was deceived um, in her mind and she thought she was doing something good for herself. So she took of its fruit and she ate. 
You see, Satan could tempt Eve, but she didn't have to take the bait. The taking was all her doing. Satan couldn't cram the fruit down her throat. Eve was responsible. She picked it and she ate it. She couldn't rightly say, the devil made me do it. Because you see, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we have a truth. Now, of course, Eve didn't know this truth, but for us, as we consider these things, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. You see, when we are tempted... When Satan comes, this scripture tells us that God is faithful to present a way out. And I think if you carefully consider, and I have done this as well, you consider your failures, points where you've sinned, things where you have done things that are incredibly unwise uh, at best, but really at worst sinful before God. When you think about it, didn't God give you warnings didn't he speak to you? Didn't he give you an understanding of the truth? And thus, doesn't that make us culpable, accountable, and responsible for our own sin? We're going to find out that God indeed holds Eve accountable for these things. Now we find uh, in the book of 1 John, John said this, 1 John chapter 2, Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So the lust of the flesh, Eve saw that it was good. The lust of the eyes, it was pleasant to the eyes and the pride of life. Satan had convinced her that eating of that fruit was desirable to make one wise. And you understand here with me that this is the same strategy Satan used with Jesus when he came to tempt Jesus in Matthew 4 and Luke chapter 4. And each time Satan spoke to Jesus, he called into question God's word. And thankfully, by Jesus' example, Jesus answered him with scripture. But one of the most disturbing things about that temptation of Jesus is that Satan even quoted scripture to Jesus. So that tells us something. You see, Satan does know God's word. And he knows it well enough to twist it in, in subtle ways so that we may not, uh, on the surface, be able to readily discern it. And you see, this is why we have been given the Holy Spirit. This is why the Spirit has come to dwell within us. It's why we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's why we need to put our nose in the book and to know God's word so that when Satan comes and even quotes scripture as he did to Jesus. You see, Jesus, if you go back and look at those two passages, those two accounts, Jesus understood that Satan was twisting the scriptures and he said, yes, but it is also written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And so Jesus fought scripture with scripture, meaning the scripture that Satan had quoted out of context, Jesus quoted in context correctly. 
Now, it's also interesting that when we consider the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, and you may recall that parable, the sower and the seeds, the sower went out to sow the seeds and it fell on four different kinds of soil. Then Jesus later in Matthew 13 in his explanation of the parable said, speaking of the third soil, now he who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. You see, that third soil, which I believe sadly is where most of us as believers live, where um, it's sown among thorns and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes unfruitful, is a result of us believing lies and, and buying into the temptations of Satan. You see, using the phrase, I didn't have time to read God's word, I didn't have time to pray, and those kinds of things really is a cop-out because it means, in reality, that these are things that I did not set as priorities for myself. If you take a look at your time, if you look at your schedule, that tells you what your priorities are. And many of us look at our time and our schedules and we say, I'm not living my life, it's living me. But you see, God calls us to be deliberate, to be specific, and to set our own priorities, and to do the things that are right. You see, we are accountable for our time, and we are accountable for the things that we do. And this is one of the biggest areas where we are being tested. You see, God wants us to live in that last soil where it says, the seed fell on good ground, and he who hears the word and understands it bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some 60, and some 30. So we find here in this passage, back in our Genesis passage in verse 6, that she gave to her husband, and he ate. So this is the first word, first time the word husband is used. And we are told in 1 Timothy 2.14, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And the point of that is this, this is not to denigrate Eve in some way. It is simply saying Eve was deceived, but Adam sinned willfully. And so she took its fruit and she ate. And she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. But I'm grateful that every time we think about and we celebrate the Lord's table, that that phrase, take and eat, will one day become for us, or has become for us, the verbs of salvation as we come to the Lord's table. And Jesus said, take and eat. You see, Satan had convinced Eve to take and eat something that God did not have for her. But Jesus comes to us and says, take and eat that which will give us life. And in that moment, as they took and they ate of the fruit, their eyes were instantly opened to their own sin and their own rebellion. Look with me in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So Satan disguises himself, and he comes to them as an angel of light. Of this passage, Paul wrote in the, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, but I'm afraid lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, that your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. And then later in that same passage, he wrote, 
Uh, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. So Satan had come. He had transformed and disguised himself as an angel of light. He had effectively convinced Eve that she should eat, and then Eve went and convinced her husband to do the same. A temptation is an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way. It's a good thing to pass a school examination, but a bad thing to do it by cheating. It's a good thing to pay your bills, but a bad thing to steal the money to make the payments. In essence, Satan said to Eve, I can give you something that you need and that you want. You can have it now and enjoy it. And best of all, there won't be any painful consequences. What a lie of Satan. Note how Satan disguises himself and his intentions. Satan is, an, is not an originator. He's a clever imitator who disguises his true character. If necessary, he can even masquerade as an angel of light. When he came into the garden, Satan used the body of a serpent, one of God's creatures that he had pronounced good when he created it. And Eve didn't seem disturbed by the serpent's presence or its speech. So we assume that she saw nothing threatening about the encounter. Perhaps Eve hadn't been introduced to the species and concluded that it had the ability to speak. Satan still works today as the great impersonator. He has produced a counterfeit righteousness apart from the righteousness that comes only by faith in the Savior. Satan has false ministers who preach a false gospel, and he has false brothers and sisters who oppose the true gospel. The devil has gathered his counterfeit Christians into false churches that God calls synagogues of Satan in Revelation chapter 2. And in these assemblies, Satan's deep secrets are discussed and taught. You see, Satan is here not for our good, and he never will be. And the words that he speaks, that he likes to disguise even as the words of God, lead us into sin. In verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Spurgeon said concerning this encounter, their hearts must have been sorely perplexed within them while they were waiting to see what God would do to them as a punishment for the great sin that they had committed. You see, what happened here ultimately is Satan had accomplished his purpose of convincing them of the lie that he himself had believed. What lie is that, you ask? Well, in Romans chapter 1, here's what it says. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. What is the lie? Well, Paul again refers to this later in 2 Thessalonians, and let me read this to you. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception those among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. 
And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. So what is this, the lie, that Paul refers to in Romans 1 and in 2 Corinthians chapter 2? Well, it says they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Speaking about Satan, Jesus said he is a liar and the father of it. In defiance of God, humans exchanged God's truth for the lie, note the singular, and followed Satan, who is the father of lies. And what is the lie singular that has ruled civilization since the fall of man? It's the belief that men and women can be their own God and live for the creation and not the creator and not suffer any consequences. Believing this, they refuse to submit to God's truth but prefer to believe Satan's lies and to follow his diabolical plan for their destruction. They don't realize that Satan is their master and the lake of fire is their destiny. You see, Satan convinces people of the lie that he fell from grace on all the way back in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. So we find here in verse 8 the first time that man hid himself from God. And so if this short little passage here teaches us anything, it teaches us that you can't run from God, you can't hide from God. And let me just say this today to you parents or to any of you who are praying for someone who was a prodigal or who has run away or who has walked away from God. Take courage in the fact that they cannot hide from God. God knows where they are. He will find them out. And the best we can do is to pray for them. And that's not a little thing. Uh, they can't outrun our prayers. They can't outrun the work of the Holy Spirit. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So God initiates reaching out to Adam. You see, this is the way God works, isn't it? He always follows up and he reaches out. And this is really the first question in the Bible. You see, Satan didn't really ask a question. He was really making more of an intimation. But here, the first question that's asked is God speaking to man saying, where are you? Now, God didn't ask because he didn't know. He asked because he wanted Adam to speak. He wanted to hear from Adam's own voice, from Adam's own heart, from Adam's own perspective, where are you? And so let me ask you today, where are you in relation to the Lord God? Are you linked with him and in fellowship with him or are you far from him or cold toward him? I hope and pray that you are drawing near to the Lord. James says, do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. You see, the first question here in the Old Testament is God speaking to man saying, where are you? The first question in the New Testament is where is he who is born, king of the Jews? 
Where are you was not the interrogation of an angry commanding officer, but the heartfelt cry of an anguished father. God obviously knew where they were, but he also knew a gulf had been created now between him and man, a gulf that he himself would have to bridge. The question was meant to arouse Adam's sense of being lost. The question was meant to lead Adam to confess his sin. The question was meant to express God's sorrow over man's lost condition. The question was meant to show that God seeks after lost man. The question was meant to express the accountability that man had before God. You see, God's question demanded an answer. They couldn't refuse to answer God the way a criminal might keep silent when questioned. They couldn't take the fifth, so to speak, before God. In our courts of law, we do not require men to answer questions which would incriminate them, but God does. And at the last great day, the ungodly will be condemned on their own confession of guilt. The way God came to Adam and Eve is a model of how he comes to the lost and the fallen people of humanity ever since. God comes patiently, waiting for the cool of the day, the evening time, the time when we can focus, the time when we let our guard down. God came to them with care coming before the darkness of night. God came to them personally, addressing Adam and Eve directly. And God came to them with truth, showing them their lost condition. Verse 10, so he said, I heard your voice in the garden. This is Adam uh, speaking. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The first sin-filled words spoken by fallen man. I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. It's the first time man hides himself. It's the first time we see fear in the Bible. What is the root of this fear that we find in Adam as he confesses this? It's the fear of loss, perhaps the fear of rejection. But as we consider this, and we talked last week about the issue of the principle of first mention, you know, psychologists and, and uh, counseling has built its profession on helping people deal with fear. And what is the first fear that man feels after sin? It's the fear of loss. It's the fear of being found out. One person wrote this, fear is a negative emotion caused by a real or perceived threat to our well-being. Anxiety means being uneasy and nervous about something we can't control, an event, a person, or a problem. Worry is to mentally dwell on difficulty or trouble. This chronic concern is the lowest level of the emotional staircase. The first step is worry. Worry turns to anxiety, and anxiety becomes fear. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. The first time blaming enters the world and not taking accountability for our own actions. The first thing Adam did was to point to his wife. Verse 13, and the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me 
and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, <clears throat> because he knows his character, he didn't ask him a question. He says, because you have done this, you were cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. This is the first prophecy coming here in verses 14 and 15. God comes and he says to the serpent, uh, you are now cursed. Now he's speaking, of course, in the, the form that he came as a snake or a serpent. <clears throat> but certainly the curse had already fallen upon Satan. And we find back in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 again, where God de decreed or declared what Satan's end would be. But he says here in verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So what is he talking about here in this messianic prophecy? He says, I will uh, put enmity between you and the woman. This is a, a veiled reference to the Virgin Mary who would one day give birth to the Lord Jesus Christ, our Messiah. And he would come as the Messiah and it says here, and uh, between your seed and her seed. You see, it's interesting, the seed is always referred to as coming from the sperm of man. But he says here, and if you have a New King James, it, it capitalizes the word seed. And this refers to the fact of the, the virgin birth, that Mary would come and she herself would be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So he refers to it as her seed rather than the seed of her husband. And he says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, referring to the cross. You see, Satan would try to take down Jesus and to prevent him from going to the cross. In fact, as we read the genealogies in Matthew and Luke, we can see that uh, where it says from the, um, it's talking about the bloodline in the Old Testament of Zechariah now that left my mind, but it was talking about where uh, Satan himself tried to interrupt the bloodline of the Messiah and to take out uh, that righteous uh, lineage all the way back to Adam and all the way back to King David. And yet Satan was unsuccessful in that. And so he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. He's saying that the best Satan could do would be to nip at the heels of Jesus, but he's saying that Satan would crush excuse me, Jesus would crush the head of Satan with a fatal blow. There is no doubt this is a prophecy of Jesus' ultimate defeat of Satan. God announced that Satan would wound the Messiah, but the Messiah would crush Satan with a mortal wound. And of course, we found that out as we studied the book of Revelation. It was as if God could not wait to announce his plan of salvation and to bring deliverance through the one known as the seed of the woman. So we find here in this passage of scripture, this is what theologians call the proto-evangelium, which means the first time the gospel and the reference to the Messiah is presented to us in scripture. The proto-evangel, some have called it. And so here God is saying in Genesis 3.15, he's saying, I'm giving you a foreshadowing of the day when the Messiah will come. And to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your, con and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, 
and he shall rule over you. There's a couple of different thoughts on this comment here. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. You see, he already said that in the previous passage last week that women were created as a helper or helpmeet for the man and we spent time uh, talking about that last week. Uh, this is not saying here that man would now uh, ruthlessly rule his wife or something like that as some have misinterpreted. But it, when it says that your desire shall be for your husband, there are two lines of thought on this. One is that she will, uh, in an unhealthy way, desire to be under her husband, perhaps too, too much, too much so, and not being the person God created her to be. But there are others who say that uh, your desire shall be for your husband is referring to the fact that she would want to, in an ungodly and an unhealthy way, switch roles with her husband and desire to have his place and to make, uh, you know, take his role and, and be the key decision maker and those kinds of things. Uh, either way you look at this, I think it's referring to the fact that something is not right and that he said, God says here, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That because of the fall, that the husband would have an even greater rule over his wife. Now we can talk about that more as we get to other topics of marriage. Uh, verse 17, then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree. And he's referring here to the fact that rather than making his own right and righteous decision, he listened to the voice of someone else, in this case his wife. You have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. In other words, you listened to someone else and broke my commandment. Cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So previously, God had said that toil or work was good for man, and it was something that God had created as a good thing. But here, because of the curse of sin, now we find that the ground will yield, in verse 18, thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. You see, Adam now would have to work extra hard to do what God had originally called him to do to tend the garden, to toil in uh, cultivating. But here he's now going to toil in a way where it's going to take a lot more effort. It's going to cause him to sweat. And in the end here, uh, see in, in chapter two, it says that God had created Adam from the dust of the earth. But here in verse 19, he says, for dust you are and to dust you shall return. And you see before the fall, we have no indication that man was created for anything but for eternal life. But now that sin and death has entered the world, death will take the life of all mankind. And he says, to dust you shall return. A concept that up to this point was foreign to Adam. And now verse 20, Adam called his wife's name Eve. So for the very first time, her name is mentioned. And you see here that uh, just as God had given Adam the responsibility to name the, all the, the animals that were created here, he's given the responsibility to name his wife and he calls her Eve because she was the mother of all living. Uh, her 
name literally means life, living, or making alive. And then he said that it was through childbearing that Eve and thus all women would be given this unique privilege and responsibility. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. This is the first blood sacrifice. Obviously the Lord had to kill or to slaughter some animals to cover Adam and Eve. Remember, they had sewn fig leaves together. And uh, if you have any idea what a fig leaf looks like, they're a little bit larger than normal leaves, but it said there that they had sewed them together. And the best that we understand about fig leaves is that they have sort of a, a fuzzy side and that they are prickly and itchy. And so man, in his wisdom, after the fall, uh, sewed together something that wasn't very useful, wasn't very helpful to try and cover his sin because he realized now that he was naked. But now God comes and says, I will clothe you. In other words, I'm not just going to cover your nakedness, I'm going to clothe you. And so God comes and he kills an innocent animal who had done nothing wrong to cover them with their skin, and this is the idea of an innocent life given for a guilty person, or what we call substitutionary atonement. And we see here the grace of God in verse 21, where he came and he made these tunics of skin and clothed them. Then in verse 22, the Lord God said, "'Behold, the man has become like one of us "'to know good and evil, and now lest he be put out excuse me, lest he put out his hand and also take of the tree of life, referring to the fact that if man in his fallen state had eaten of the tree of life, which would have given him eternal life in his fallen state, eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. God did not want sin and eternal life to coexist. And so he drove out the man. Notice it says in verse 24, excuse me, 23, God sent him out of the garden. Then in verse 24, he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So we see here that God now protecting the tree of life and as we looked last week briefly uh, in the mention of the tree of life in the book of Revelation, we see that God's tree of life exists in his holy eternal garden in heaven, referred to in the book of Revelation. But here he drove man out. He cast him out. And he protected eternal life with cherubim and with this sword, this flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, from Genesis 3... To Revelation 21, the Bible records the conflict between God and Satan, sin and righteousness, and pleads with sinners to repent and to trust God. Finally, we find in Paul's writing in his letter to the Romans, in Romans chapter 5, we find this about Adam. Romans 5.12, that Therefore, just as through one man, referring to Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin. And then he said in Romans 5.15, For if by the one man's offense many died, Romans 5.16, um, the judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation, 
Verse 17, for if by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one, meaning through Adam. Verse 18, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. And verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, you see, that one decision of disobedience by Adam brought sin into the world and brought to us as mankind death and condemnation and offense and put enmity between us and God, and it brought judgment from God. But then the good news is, as we close this morning, what God says there in Romans chapter 5, as he contrasts the one man Adam and the one man Christ, he says that Adam was a type of him who was to come, meaning Jesus. And he says, the much more grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. The free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. Much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Even so, through the one man's righteous act, Jesus, the free gift came to all men resulting in justification of life. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Even so, grace will reign through the righteous eternal life that's brought to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This morning as we close and we consider what happened when sin entered the world, I want to fast forward you to the New Testament and just relish in the fact that God has sent his son, Jesus Christ. You see, there was that proto-evangel, that reference to the Messiah coming and that he would take the sin of the world and that he would ultimately defeat Satan. And so Jesus is our only hope. Jesus has come to take our sin and to give us grace and to bring forgiveness. But what we have to do is humble ourselves before God, admit our sin, repent, and ask Jesus for forgiveness. You see, if we will do that, then the forgiveness of heaven comes to us. You see, God gives grace and greater grace to those who will come and humble themselves before him. Shall we pray this morning? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. We pray, God, that all who are listening this morning, if there are any who have never trusted in you or who have been unsure, that this morning they would humble themselves and receive the goodness of the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as the payment for their sin, so that we might now have a relationship with you, God, through the blood of your Son, the innocent Lamb of God, slaughtered for us that we might have a righteous relationship with you. God, thank you for making a way. Thank you for providing Jesus. Thank you that we are now robed in his righteousness and clothed by the blood that he has shed for us. And so this morning, if you would like to just simply pray and invite the Lord Jesus to come into your life, we encourage you to do so right now and just say, Lord, come into my life and forgive me of my sin. Lord, I admit I'm a sinner and I come to you and the best I know how, Lord, I wanna turn from 
that old life and uh, all of those sinful ways that have gotten me nowhere. And I come to you and I ask you, God, please help me. Be merciful to me, a sinful person. And this morning, I encourage you, the Lord Jesus has heard your prayer and has come into your life and cleansed you and is right now making you a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are made new. And Lord, for those of us, as we've been listening this morning, there's been some point of conviction or some, some tickle of just realizing that maybe we've been off or believing something that's not true. We also come as your children. And thank you that we have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we can come and confess our sin. And if anyone confesses his sin, we know that you are faithful and righteous and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us. And so, Lord, we're grateful for that this morning. And so for those of us who perhaps just need to do a little reset and return to you, we do that. We ask you, God, show us how to manage our time. Show us how to live in these days. Lord, for many of us, our phones tell us on Sunday mornings how much average screen time we spend each week on our phone. And Lord, uh, a three-hour screen time a day equals reading the Bible through 23 times in a year. So we can't say we don't have time. We can only say we haven't made it a priority. So would you show us how we can make reading your word and fellowshipping with you more of a priority in our lives, that we might draw near to you, and more importantly, Lord, that you might draw near to us because we need you so desperately this morning. We love you. We bless you, we honor you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.